Welcome to Hire the Smile, the podcast on all things related to human resources in veterinary medicine. Join me, Katie Ardeline, and my colleague, Mike Pownell, as we discuss how to support and take care of the people who are instrumental in making your business a success. Great businesses share one common feature. They focus on taking care of their employees. They create businesses where everyone feels empowered and motivated to be the best they can be. These businesses want highly engaged employees and they do whatever it takes to make this happen because they know that highly engaged employees lead to more growth, client loyalty, and profitability. Veterinary medicine is a challenging profession, but it can be made so much easier if we build business cultures that attract and retain the best people. Subscribe to Hire the Smile for great discussions on taking care of the people that make us all better. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Hire the Smile, episode 22. Once again, my colleague in arms in this HR uh, battle that we're through, uh, Katie Arline. How are you, Katie? Hey, Mike. I'm doing well, thanks. Just uh, looking forward to summer sometime. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> and, and I guess the battle of HR is probably not appropriate. It's not a battle, but it is It is ongoing. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle. I like that one. That's much better. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I tell myself anyway. <laughs> it is. Yeah. No, that's fair. I like that one much better. So today we're going to talk about, I, I'm kind of excited about this one, only because this is an area that is really prevalent in vet medicine. Mm-hmm. And I find this to be one of the more challenging aspects of HR. So a couple of weeks ago, our national newspaper in Canada, uh, I see this editorial and it's titled The Good Doctor. It's time to stop treating character like an afterthought in medicine and everywhere else. And the writer of this, Dr. Jillian Horton, she's a physician and a writer. And she's talking about, I'm not going to name names, but she was watching a news interview with a politician in another country. And the politician has been accused of just saying horrible things, homophobic and misogynist statements. And this person is in a role, let's call him a facilitator role or a, a representative for the country. And somebody asked the head of the country, why have you chosen this person? Because, you know, they don't do nice things or say nice things. And the comment was, well, uh, it doesn't really matter because this person's an expert in something. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my gosh, have we ever heard this a lot in veterinary medicine? We have seen not just doctors or DVMs or surgeons or specialists, but also um, technicians, people that have really great skill set, but are just a monster to work with. And the excuse always is, oh, they're just really talented. We can't lose them. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar? Mm, absolutely. Everybody else yeah. is probably nodding their heads as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. In this article, you know, um, she goes on about particularly this is a male problem. And I don't agree with that because I think in vet medicine, I just think it's your population. I see it in all genders. Like it's, yep. it's just there. Yeah. And, but what's interesting, it's true if you're talking about medicine, but it's also true in vet medicine too, is that we see these people and these quirks are often celebrated. And I've had discussions with classmates and we've talked about people that they have worked with and screaming and the throwing. It's, I think a few years ago, we used to laugh at that. And mm-hmm. now I hear stories like that and I get, I'm horrified. 
You know, I just I hear stories of veterinarians even now just losing their tempers and just erupting. You're just like, this is this is not right. But when the question is asked, why is this abuse or this behavior allowed to persist? Well, they're a great doctor. Mm -hmm. Clients love them. And Mm -hmm. so the concluding argument in this article was people who lack good character don't make good doctors or good politicians or serve much use to anyone other than themselves. Mm -hmm. They may have some technical or knowledge skills, but their deficiencies will cost us even more and i'm mm-hmm. like yes so mm-hmm. i thought let's talk about this mm-hmm. yeah there's so many reasons why this might happen and how people go down this road and all that kind of stuff so i think it's a really great thing to talk about yeah and so coincidentally you found a really interesting article which i thought was just the stars were aligned Mm-hmm. So it bluntly is called uh, Managing a Top Performer Who Alienates Their Colleagues. This is a HBR Harvard Business Review online article by Rebecca Knight from earlier in April of this year. The intro is basically along the lines of what you said. So having a high performer, it's somebody who's incredibly smart. They're a very high achiever, but they leave a trail of broken professional uh, relationships behind them. And they can be a, a challenge to manage because often there is somebody who is that high performer. And that is definitely something that veterinary medicine in general is uh, in support of, you know, there's targets for production and a lot of compensation is based on production and it's difficult because it really enables this type of personality. So when your compensation rewards goal and target achievement, uh, this kind of personality is uh, often allowed to sort of continue what they're doing. But really, uh, it's a double-edged sword. So you're, they're contributing to the company, obviously, to the bottom line, but they're undermining the long-term performance of the team because they're creating tension or other great people are leaving because they can't stand working with this person. It's just not, it's a conundrum. You know, there's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, but I would argue they're not actually contributing to the bottom line because I think Everybody looks at their top line and, wow, they're they're billing a lot. You know, it would cost us if we lost them. Mm-hmm. But nobody factors in what you just talked about, the turnover, the people that don't work, the other colleagues that may decide, I don't want to be involved with this person, staff that quits. All of that has a cost. Definitely. Even just the decreased morale. I, I, I think it's actually more expensive to keep them on. It is. You know, we always go back to talking about employee engagement. We go back to talking about the importance of culture. And we've talked about the numbers and about how increasing employee engagement has such a profound effect on profitability of the business. And this is definitely one of those areas. Mm -hmm. If you have a long term person who's done customer service for you for 16 years, and the high performer comes in and the person's like, well, this isn't worth it to me anymore. So many relationships and so much institutional knowledge that leaves with that person. And unless you sort of understand the impact of culture on your company, it can be easy to say, oh, well, this person is still billing super high, so it doesn't matter, but it does. Probably the other thing that's coming along right now, and uh, as we're recording this in April 2021, is there's a real shortage of veterinarians. Yeah. So people will often say, well, better the devil I know, and at least we have a vet. And that, I think, is a real uh, quandary because it's not like you can lose a vet and there's it's not like you have a pick of the litter of who's going to replace them. That's and so true. I think a lot of people are trying to manage them. And I think this is what this article is great about mm-hmm. is 
how to manage them. So yeah, we don't have a lot of vets. And so sometimes you're in that position of this situation has to change. Before we jump into the what we need to do, let's talk a little bit about why we think these people are so prevalent in our profession. Where is this coming from, you think? You were in it, so you would know better than I. But I think just the whole process of getting into vet school and being in vet school and having the focus be on marks and be on achievement and people getting just rewarded for that kind of positive feedback or positive attributes, they've been rewarded for it forever. So all of a sudden they have to work with other people and they don't have the tools to effectively communicate with others and effectively be a team player, really. That's kind of what my thought is. And I don't have proof. This is what I just have observed is that, you know, getting into vet school is not a team sport. No. It's a very isolated. It is like you are just from society, from your parents, for your own self. It's like any barrier in the way you are going to just pull aside. Like you don't care. And I Mm -hmm. think that's unfortunate. And I really, I really learned to appreciate that is, oh boy. 10 years ago, eight years ago, we hired a vet assistant who has a strong background in a sport. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so she competed high level to Canadian, but she was actually a full scholarship to play in the States. So, you know, high level athlete. And this is a person who grew up in a team sport, in a team environment. And wow, what a difference. It was just like, The collaboration and the emotional intelligence and the listening. This is so different. Everybody else who, including myself, I mean, like I'm putting myself smack dab in this. This is, uh, I would say I was a very high performer that was a monster to work with. So I get where that's coming from. That's part of what we need to do to help these people is to show them the benefit of the teamwork. I, I also think the other thing that comes in is that invest school. I mean, I think it's a generational thing. So you know, when I graduated in 2001, and I've heard stories from students up until about 2010, 2012, and I think since then things are changing. A lot of our professors are registered or LDTs at vet school. Some of them are pretty horrible people. And the way they treated each other, the way that they treated students, the way they treated clients. And, you know, when you're young and impressionable, and you see these people in positions of authority, acting this way, well, that's the behavior you model. Again, I don't think anybody has ever proven this, but this is just the observation. Yeah, I think also uh, a lot of the time, and I'm generalizing again, and I don't necessarily have data, uh, but people have gone through, you know, university and they've gone through vet school and they haven't necessarily uh, had part-time job where they've had to interact with other people (laughs) so you know whether they have student loans or they have uh, the support of their family financially or whatever the case may be they don't know what it's like to interact in like a a business how to recruit people for your team versus being a team of one person so i think that that makes a difference as well i kind of look at the analogies we're seeing all these stories in in the restaurant industry of chefs Mm. who are just that that macho, abusive, physically and emotionally abusive, and how it's not being tolerated. But it, it was so much part of the culture. And I think a lot of it used to be in vet medicine, and I think it lingers, of that, well, because you're a surgeon, and I'm not picking on surgeons, but that's just what shows up is, again, going back to that article that from that physician of, 
the surgeons that freak out and scream, everybody sort of laughs at, oh, but they're so brilliant. And I think that there's a, a certain element of that too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's perpetuated and tolerated yeah, because so, of the payoff yeah. is for sure. So I think uh, before we get into sort of the points of how to deal, I think another point too here that was interesting that they talk about is that these high performers may be respected by their peers or by the people that they work with, but they're not necessarily trusted and people don't want to work with them. So, you know, you might say, hey, I'm going to pair you up with this super high performer. They're going to teach you all they know about X, Y, Z. And the person's like, "Mm, I don't want to have to work with this person. So you're also missing out on possibly, you know, the transfer of some of that mind and some of that brilliance because people are like, heck no, I'm not going to do that. It's not worth it. So, you know, there's a lot to lose there as well. I also think what you're just saying there just made me think of something else. We are a relatively small profession. I think there's probably three degrees of separation rather than six degrees of separation. And as most practices are looking at, you know, we've got to hire vets, we've got to hire staff. Word gets around when there's a a vet or a person, a, a technician or a receptionist or an office manager who is an ogre. I mean, it, it gets mm-hmm. around. And I think a lot of practices limit the candidates that show up because people say, uh, so-and-so works there. Yeah, I heard they're a bear. I'm not going there. Yeah, that's a great point. All righty. So the article goes on to give some really good suggestions on how to deal with this type of personality. And the first one, which is one that's always near to dear to my heart and what we've talked about recently on the podcast is that you have to be willing and have the courage to give this person tough feedback. Tell them exactly how they're affecting others. Because often you say, oh, you have to be nicer, but they're like, well, why? Like, it doesn't matter. But if you can say, well, because Sarah tried to work with you and you came in and you slammed your hand on the table and didn't give her a chance to get a word in edgewise, it made her feel like she wasn't a valuable member of the team. I mean, the bonus would be to have those people tell your high performer themselves. That's not always possible, but help them understand how it is that they affect others. And they they give some suggestions for some language or for some types of things to say. And I thought they were really good. It's a bit of that uh, shit sandwich idea that we talked about a few uh, podcasts ago when we talked about feedback, but making sure that they understand that their contributions are valuable uh, and needed, but you also need them to understand how they affect other people and that they're being accountable for not just what they're doing, but how they do it. Uh, And I thought this, this is probably my favorite line from the whole thing. In order to fulfill your ambitions, you must learn how to behave differently. Otherwise, you're not going to accomplish what you want to accomplish. So they might have these huge aspirations, but they don't realize that they're going to be holding themselves back eventually. You know, if there's places they're trying to go or things they're trying to achieve, generally, you can't really do that without other people. So learning how to give them the feedback and not sort of shying away and definitely not enabling it by telling other people, oh, well, but they bill a million dollars a year. So it doesn't matter. They're really important to this company. You're sending a message if you don't deal with that as well. It's a huge message. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's another line there. And I think this is a part of this kind of discussion, this tough love, this frank discussion is we can't shy away from the ramifications. The one line is they say, say to the person, you're in repair mode. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, nobody's going to want to hear this. But after they've gone home and slept on it overnight, they're at some point in their mind that's going to pop in there. Oh, my job might be in jeopardy. Yeah. And so saying repair mode is telling them, 
we're repairing. It's not saying your job is over. It's not saying do this or else. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a really great phrase of saying we can fix this. Yeah. And I think, you know, making sure that they understand that you're not saying that they're an ass. Like, I'm not saying you're a terrible person. It's a rare person who's actually a terrible person. But this is how you're affecting people. And, um, you know, you need to separate that because often people, if they're not used to receiving feedback, then they take things as an attack. Like we talked about when we talked about giving feedback, I want to help you be better. If we really hated you, you'd be gone already. But there are things that we want, we think that you can improve on. So I think that that's important. That learning how to give tough feedback, everything comes back to that. It's so important. 100%. Yeah. So here's the problem, though, because the next section is talk about development. Yeah. And I have been in these conversations. Clients have hired us and pushing us into the lion's den. Feel like Frodo going in to see Smog, Lord of the Rings. And I have had situations where you bring this up, you do the tough love, you have the frank conversation, and the person just goes, nope, I'm fine. Everybody else is wrong. Mm-hmm. and you can't get through. So how do we handle those people? I think you have to consider what would happen if this person no longer worked for your company. Does it get to a certain point where you're like, yeah, I like to have this money in the bank that this person is making, but the collateral damage is just too high and it's costing money elsewhere. Right. Consider like, what's our culture? What are our core values? And what is the lasting damage that I'm doing if I'm allowing this person to operate in direct contravention of our core values or somebody who's really not uh, following on the culture bus. So I think that they need to understand that you be you and nobody's going to change unless they want to change. But if they want to be successful at your business, then they have to learn. I mean, you're a practice owner. So, you know, (laughs) what do you think? Well, yeah, 100% agree. I'm just thinking of the people listening to this going, yeah, but I don't have other vets. How do I do this? And I've been in this situation and I think what happens is then you sort of get to the ultimatum with the person is they're just twist down. Everybody else is wrong. I don't care. And they just don't want to go down the road of self-reflection asking, Hey, maybe I am a bit of a problem, but they're just, that's not going to happen. I have seen in several situations where you let that person go. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, the other vets are going to kill me because they're going to have to put extra work on, or you're getting rid of a really outstanding, technically gifted technician. You know what always happens? Everybody is like, oh, I'm so appreciative this person is gone. You know what? We are so thankful to you. We are going to band together. We'll just we'll ride out until we get the next person. Yeah. It's better for us to work a little bit harder in a nice environment than to work what we would normally do in a really tough, emotionally difficult environment. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how you have to look at it as well, too, because there is a cost. As you said, they bring in a lot of revenue. I think they cost you money. I don't think the customers like them as much as we like to think they are. Yeah. My experience is whenever a person who's a high performer who has just put their foot down and is not changing and they're just going to carry on the way they are. Most of these practices really haven't seen a revenue decline. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody sort of carries on. I think there's a lot of fear about that. Yeah, definitely. Kind of the old HR adage is you spend 95% of your time dealing with 5% of the people. And this is exactly one of those cases, you know, think about, people are, aren't having to sort of have side conversations about this person anymore. 
we've talked about this before. I can't remember what podcast it was, but just the cost of crap dealing with crap. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, 20 to 30% of your day could be eaten up. And I've seen it uh, in my personal life, having uh, somebody close to me sort of change jobs from a place where there was a lot of background crap going on and moving into a place where it's like, no, we all just respect each other. And we just get the work done and we talk to the boss and he's understanding. And it's like a a night and day situation. So I think you have to Mm -hmm. consider not just the overall, you know, cost of replacing somebody or cost of replacing people that leave because of this person, but just overall discord, how much wasted time there is with that in a company for sure. Yeah. All right. So let's assume that you have somebody that was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was having this impact on people. Okay. Yeah. What do I do? So the article talks about development. What's the Mm -hmm. next step? This is, again, the hardest part, I think, is encouraging empathy and and helping somebody build their self-awareness. You know, we talked about it already, but people don't recognize the effect they have on other people. And the adage of impact doesn't indicate intent. You know, you can only get so far by saying, I'm sorry, I made you feel that way. It's like, no. (laughs) You know, we had a recent, uh, in where I live here, I live kind of close to Toronto, west west of Toronto. Uh, the member of parliament for my community made some really offside comments. Oh, those were bad. Really bad, bad comments. And uh, basically he came out and he said, oh, I'm sorry you were offended. Yeah, I'm sorry if I offended anybody. He didn't say what I said was wrong, uh, but he basically uh, equated COVID measures to concentration camps. Uh, and, you know, the the imp- impingement on people's liberties, nothing's been bad since this is basically the same so and everybody he said well that's not what i meant and he tried to get all parse it how it was and it's like no dude like you said the wrong thing and you need to say that it was wrong and move on but it's the same thing you people often say oh well it's their problem that they took what i said that way and that's absolutely not a self-aware way to think of things so you know helping people develop ways to be more sensitive to other people's reactions you know like is this person pulling back from me when i come in and i slam my fist on the desk in the morning are they chipper and happy to work with me or do they retreat do i see tears in their eyes you know do you see them girding their loins before uh, i come in the door in the morning so helping them see how they affect other people and put them in the shoes of other people too. And that, I mean, that's what empathy is, is like, okay, well, what, what's motivating this person? And, you know, what's, what's important for them? Because it's not all just about me, you know, where are they coming from? And often I think uh, if this sort of personality slowed down, they would see that they had a lot in common with other people, but they just haven't really thought about things that way. They haven't thought about how they can use other people to make them better. And I think sometimes... And they never had that before. So that's, no. I think that's a great learning opportunity because they've had to do everything themselves. And so that's what they, that's what they know. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, there is a team there and you know, the customer care person who's been there for 16 years can probably be a lot more help to you than you think, but you know, people tend to bulldoze and come in. And I think also, uh, and I saw this when I used to play music and I was in school for jazz performance and I've seen it elsewhere too, is, you know, the people who are highly intelligent, to be honest, not everybody's as, as intelligent as you are. <laughs> so I think having, I'm not saying everybody's stupid, but you know, not everybody thinks exactly the same way that you do. Not everybody is uh, as proficient as you are in exactly the things that you are. So having a mm-hmm. bit of empathy there and saying there are other things that this person can contribute. 
Um, but having a bit of patience for people, I think, is huge as well. As we start talking about these behaviors and, and the, what we see from these people, it also it sounds to me like very insecure people. Could be, yeah. And I know we'll get into that in a little bit, but I think there's a way we we can, there's ways we can help that. But anyway, I digress. No, I I see where you're coming from for sure, and I think that can be a, an element of it. You know, they've they've put up walls and they've kind of do things in a certain way to protect themselves without sort of ever having to deal with insecurity. And, and, you know, we talk about imposter syndrome, which we should do a podcast on for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That self doubt uh, is giant as well. So for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the back of my head, imposter syndrome has been coming back and forth a lot. So yeah, we should definitely talk about that. Okay. Uh, okay. So the next thing they talk about is uh, be compassionate uh, on this person. Like I've said before, and I'll say it again a million times. There are very few people who are actual monsters. They obviously have some good qualities that have brought them to where they are. You know, they're super focused. They are really passionate about what they do. They care deeply about the job uh, and just say, you know, I understand your frustration. And it could be somebody, they see somebody who isn't as dedicated in their mind as they are and how that can definitely seem frustrating. So you need to have a bit of compassion for this person. And I don't want to make these people out to be monsters because they don't often see, you know, they think that they're affecting people one way, but the the reality is the other. And the key is, can they sort of take that step and say, oh, I need to get into that repair mode that you talked about. And that can be really hard. If nobody's ever talked to you about this, you know, you're like 55, you're a practice owner. And, you know, all of a sudden you hear that uh, people aren't happy with you, but nobody said anything about it before. It's pretty crushing. So we need to have compassion. Definitely. Yeah, I think compassion is huge because, as you said, people are hearing something they've never heard before. And I think it all gets part of, uh, you know, you're, you're going to put a, a framework to move forward. Mm-hmm. You have become an ally to this person. You are the the person that's going to help them get through that. And so by being compassionate, it gives them some comfort that this is actually repair mode and not be better or else. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's doable. I mean, it's it's possible yeah, if exactly. they want, if they accept and they want to do something about it, anything is possible, definitely. And I mean, we've seen some amazing transformations of people, uh, but the common denominator is always that they're humble and they say, okay, yes, there's something I need to do here to change. Uh, okay, so the fifth thing they talk about, good old coaching. So either whether you hire a professional coach for this person or you coach them yourselves, and also something to remember, and I think I put an asterisk with this one too, it wasn't necessarily in the article, but making sure that you're asking other people how they're doing as well. So if you as the practice owner, you're sitting with this person, you're like, oh man, they're doing really well. They could be one way with you and totally different with somebody else. So you can't base your concept of their progress just on what you're seeing. It's the people that they work with who can tell you whether real change is happening. So that was my asterisk that I put in there. You know what? That reminds me of something. And I think as a practice owner and a leader, and I know we've had discussions before on this, these poor performers or volatile performers, what have you, they could be your best friend. As the practice owner, they often, I think they sometimes know that they're not the nicest, but they know who to be nice to. Yeah. And I remember a situation where uh, we had of that, that, you know, just wasn't fitting with the team. I got along with them exceptionally well. 
And it was almost an intervention from the team to say, like, Mike, like, no, this is what's going on with us. And, you know, I, I learned a lot from that situation. I was sincerely humbled by it. But it really taught me that people will, you know, it's kind of an obvious thing. As I'm saying it now, it's like a big forehead palm. And I'm like, yeah, duh, of you're the leader. You sign the paychecks. They're going to be nicer to you. And, but they're not necessarily doing that to others. So listen to the staff. I think you're, that's a great asterisk of yours. Mm-hmm. And also, if you can sort of call them out on it in a nice way, like you perceive them as one way and the staff perceives them as the other, and they obviously treat you differently because you're the boss, say, hey, can you try and treat everybody like they're the boss? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like treat everybody like you treat me, you know? And that is the line that they had in here. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty simple, actually. And, you know, thinking about it um, with clients that are have in these sort of issues now, not necessarily with veterinary staff, but with support staff. Why is the personality different? And what is it that's making you act this way? And what can we do about it? So it's, it's asking questions and trying to help them be that self-aware of where is, where is this actually coming from? Uh, and learning to give people the benefit of the doubt, uh, I think is huge as well. And it you know goes back to not making assumptions and asking questions and coming from a place of inquiry when you're trying to talk to somebody and not just assuming what their intentions are. I think that's massive as well. I agree. Yeah. And then the sixth thing that they say, which seems like it should be obvious, but it isn't always is to have patience with this person. Uh, You know, it takes time to build their relational competence. They already have task competence. And I thought this was a really good, this is almost like hard skills versus soft skills really is what they're saying. The hard skills are there, the soft skills are not there. And it's so hard to change soft skills. You know, even if you're aware, you've been doing things a certain way for so long, it's just who you are. And, you know, often we say to people, or they say to us, I don't want to change who I am. I don't want to change my personality. Uh, And, you know, kind of have to say to them, okay, well, what are you willing to give up then? Because you're not going to get where you want to get unless you change things. Often these people uh, can be micromanager type people because they don't necessarily trust that others can take the responsibility or they're going to follow up like they like. So, you know, encouraging them to learn to let others take responsibility and maybe their, their life actually ends up less stressful if they can sort of let others take part of their burden. 100%. And also encourage them to be patient with themselves too. You know, you're a high performer, you're a really intelligent person. They might be like, oh, I'm trying really hard and I'm not getting there. And it's like, okay, well, be patient with yourself and reflect on what's happening. It can be hard, you know, if you think you've been working on something for so long and you still get that feedback uh, that might be, you know, constructive or negative, like, well, what the heck? Why am I even trying? They're not seeing it. But it's a process and it takes time. And I guarantee after time, people will see that you are trying. Uh, so yeah, that was the last part was the having patience. Yeah, I've always said in those situations, I have loads of patience for those who are genuinely trying. Yes. And it does take a while. And But often when the, that person is genuinely trying, the results are so worth it. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing worth doing is easy. If these people can develop the soft skills that match their their technical skills, wow, what an amazing person. And it also really signals to the rest of your office or your, your practice how much you care for people that you're going to help them develop. Definitely. I think that's a really important factor. Mm-hmm. As we're... Uh, discussing this, I keep on thinking often we're getting into these situations and we're having to fix it. And we don't spend enough time talking about, well, how do you prevent this? 
And, you know, a couple of things that came uh, to mind and you touched upon a little bit is when you're hiring people, hiring them based on your culture, hiring them based on your values and your, your mission, your purpose, not just hiring them because they're a DVM or an LVT or an RVT or they've had loads of experience in the role, but hiring them to make sure they're the right fit. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's huge. And I know we've talked about that in the past. And I think it's easier to prevent a problem. You know, a lot of the things that we do are just symptoms of a bad process somewhere else. And mm -hmm. so if we fix up our hiring system. I sound like I'm on a, you know, my soapbox, but I always come back to, as I you know, how we compensate people really signals what's important. Mm -hmm. And so if you have somebody that's on straight production and you're trying to talk to them, on one hand, you're saying, all we care about is how much revenue you bring in and everything else is not so important. And so I think any kind of compensation system has to have a balance between production, but also how they fit with the culture of the practice. Uh, and when they realize that how they're getting paid is determined to a certain degree on how well they get on to others, you're telling them this is important, not just how much you produce, but how well you get along with the team, how you support the team is, is equally important. Yeah. And I think this also, you know, if this person uh, wants to possibly buy into the company and, and be a partner, you have a duty of care as an owner to make sure that that person is going to be a good fit for the culture. So helping them, you know, we talked about one of the strategies being talking to them about how this could hinder their progress. It's like, well, you know, you could, you know, definitely seen people in, in practices who want to be owners and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine how damaging that would be for the rest of the practice. Or we've seen owners who have been promoted and, and have bought in and they are this type of personality and it's just so damaging. So mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. need to be not just say, oh, well, this person's got tons of money and yeah, we want them as a, a partner, but it's it's more than that for sure. Yeah, it's really hard to ask somebody else to change their behavior when one of the owners is yes. doing equally toxic behavior. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Man, that really doesn't have any foundation. So excellent article. And I think this is really an important, uh, really an important subject. That's unfortunate. It's it's there in a lot of practices. I think these tips are really great ones to help somebody get on the right track. But I same time, we also got to remember, we can't just be looking at the revenue they bring in. Uh, I'm more sympathetic right now that there's a shortage and you're like, I don't have this bet. I don't have a bet at all. Yes. Um, and so these are great tips to help somebody hopefully open up their eyes to how they could be even a better vet, better supporter for the team. But these people can really have such a long lasting damaging effect on the company. It maybe sometimes it's at, at times it's worthwhile just to hate that short-term hit, even though, you know, your practice revenue might go down or you as the owner or the other vets or technicians or what have you have to do a bit of extra work for a period of time. It's that's sometimes worth it. Mm -hmm. I mean, nobody should be more important than anybody else is what it comes down to. So for sure. Basically. Yeah. Cool. Hey, so we're going to try a new thing. Uh, this episode, we usually do wins and fails. And I just started, I said, Katie, let's try doing our hacks, like productivity hacks. Mm, when mm -hmm. we talk to a lot of people, they're always talking about, oh, I wish I had more time, or I wish I was more organized, or I wish I had less on my plate. So I thought, let's start you know, bringing in and discussing things that help us organize our lives easier. I mean, we're busy, everybody's busy, but I think, you know, let's see what we can share. 
So what is, I'll start. Okay. So I have uh, an app. Uh, it's also on my desktop. It's also on my phone or my iPad called Get Pocket. If you're searching for it online on you know, your web browser, it's getpocket.com. But just search in the app stores, whether it's uh, Google or the Apple, just Pocket. And what it basically allows you to do is whenever you're reading an article that's of interest to you, it allows you to just click on the icon and save it. And so, you know, you're busy, but you're like, oh, my God. this morning I was reading an article at breakfast. I'm like, I really want to read this. I don't have time. I just click, put it on pocket. I can read it at my convenience. Uh, I have since, I, I love it. And it helps me like when we're doing things like this, like, oh, there's a great article. Let's save it. Or, you know, uh, ideas for presentations or articles I want to share with the vets or staff in my own practice or other, you know, clients. Uh, I love it. And I bought the premium and it's not that expensive. I think it's like $3 a month and it allows you to highlight, you know, you can archive it, you can tag it. So if you want to quickly search for something, mm-hmm. that saves me a lot of time. So it's like your browser bookmarks on steroids. And can you read the stuff offline? Basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause that's yeah, the whole thing is, the is that it saves it. And so, uh, you know, if you're flying somewhere, just make sure you're, you're loaded up and then get on the plane and all your articles are there highlight them and save them and tag them love it nice saves me a lot of time nice. helps me organize my life easily because mm-hmm. so often you read an article and you're like "Ooh, there's a gem in here and then you're like well how am i going to remember this or where how can i remember where this came from so this sounds like a great solution yeah so pocket cool all right uh so mine is and i uh have to have the caveat of saying just right up front that I'm not perfect at any of this stuff. So, but (laughs) time management can often be a pickle. Uh, And, you know, I, I work from home. I don't work in a clinic environment all the time anymore. So obviously this isn't something that would necessarily work for everybody, but I often have a number of big tasks that I need to work on and it can sort of get overwhelming. So in a day you've got three or four things you need to work on. Uh, you've got emails still coming in or, you know, there are other things that can grab your attention. So what I stumbled across is called the Pomodoro technique, uh, which some people may have heard of, but it's very, really super, super simple. So it's called the Pomodoro technique because the guy who came up with it initially used uh, a timer in the shape of a tomato, like a kitchen timer to do his timing. Uh, But basically what it is, is you break down your workday into 25 minute segments of focus. So uh, you work on one thing for 25 minutes, uh, set a timer. uh, And then after that 25 minutes is up, you take a five minute break, no matter what. So even if you're in the middle, you're like on the flow of something, you still have to take that five minute break. That half hour segment is called a Pomodoro. They say after four of them, you should take a longer break. So a 15 to 30 minute break. I find it really helps me to have like small deadlines so that to me, I kind of see that 25 minutes of a deadline and it kind of becomes a game of how much can I get done in this 25 minutes before the break happens. And it can be difficult uh, because you could get interrupted. uh, But they suggest when you get interrupted, it's like, okay, well, am I going to work on this now? And I'm going to break this Pomodoro and have to restart it. Or is it something that I can file and deal with after if you finish something early, you can look at your task list for the day and say, okay, what tasks can I assign to these Pomodoros? And I think it's really uh, has helped me as well, because if I look at my task list during the day, and I'm planning out Pomodoros, I can also say, okay, well, this, I feel like this should take an hour. So I'm going to 
you know, schedule in two Pomodoros for this. So it helps you sort of schedule your time a little bit as well. There are lots of apps or free timer websites. I use a timer on a website thing and it just dings after 25 minutes and then it starts to count down the, the breaks. You can get really fancy with this stuff. I find for me, simpler is better. And this is pretty simple. So um, yeah, that's my tip of the week is the Pomodoro technique. Love it. Yeah, I use a version of it. I'm just, I've always just been blocking off like real, like I'm going to spend an hour on this. I'm not blocking off the whole day because I know I'm going to get tired or my mind will, I need a break. So I think the 25 minutes, I think it's a neat idea. So I'm going to start trying that. I think some people do longer, maybe a little bit shorter, but the idea is that you have to very strictly adhere to the 25 minutes of work and then five minutes break where I don't know if you surf the web or you get up and walk around, get a, a coffee or whatever the deal is, but you have to keep it quite regimented. You know, it, it reminds me of it. I think part of what this is so effective is that it forces you to uh, schedule your activity or your tasks in the day instead of just saying, well, I got office work. Yeah. You're like, no, nope, I'm going to work on this project for this hour, that project for that half hour. And then your day is planned. And then you build in the breaks, just like when you're, you have a busy vet practice, you build in your breaks for sudden emergencies and what have you. But it keeps a, a structure. Exactly. And when we have a structure, it's easier to maintain it. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, uh, people who are listening. If you have any um, subjects you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us online or info at oculusinsights.net. Please, uh, we would just uh, would be really appreciative if you can give us a rating on whichever podcast app you're using. Uh, Apple is the biggest one, but if we just just help to spread the word, we get great feedback from people. So I figure if some people are enjoying it, others will as well. So thank you all very much. Right on. Thanks, Mike. All right. Have a great day. See ya. Thank you for listening to Hire the Smile, brought to you by Oculus Insights. Our goal at Oculus is to support veterinary businesses around the world by helping you clear your path to success. This episode was produced and edited by Heather McPherson. Special thanks to Alyssa Rubenstein for doing the amazing marketing that she does for Oculus. You can see what we are up to by checking us out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and our website, oculusinsights.net. If you think you could use a business advisor or performance coach, go to advicebyoculus.com. See you next time.